Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Chrisula Andreu. Chrisula is professor of philosophy at the University of Utah. Her research focuses in moral philosophy, with emphasis on issues in practical reasoning, rationality, and the theory of action. She's written a fantastic new book, which has just been published with Oxford University Press. It's titled Choosing Well, The Good, the Bad, and the Trivial. Now, it's common to think that rational agency involves acting in ways that, given one's options, maximize the satisfaction of one's preferences or further one's aims. This intuitive understanding has generated a wide-ranging literature about the ways in which individuals routinely fail to be rational in the proposed sense. They make choices that not only don't maximize their preferences, but maximize the satisfaction of their preferences, but also tend to undermine or defeat their aims. So maybe we're not rational animals after all. In Choosing Well, Krasula argues and explores certain cases of purported irrationality that involve disorderly preferences, but need not involve irrationality on the part of agents. She argues that there are cases where, although our preferences might be disorderly, we nonetheless can preserve our rationality by taking care to attend to the patterns of choice we instantiate. Along the way, Chrysula proposes an intriguing idea about how we assess our choices. She also gives us a theory about how we understand temptation and when it's rational to regret choices that we've made. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about, but as usual, again, we'll also begin with our guest. Hello, Chrysula. How are you? Hi, Bob. Good. So, it's really uh, nice. Thank you. It's really nice to talk to you, and thank you for writing such a wonderful book. <laughs> thank you for the invitation. So um, we usually start, as I mentioned, with a little bit about the the author, um, and this episode will be no different. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, sure. Uh, I was born in Montreal, Canada. I'm now a professor at the University of Utah, where I've been based ever since I got my PhD uh, from the University of Pittsburgh. And um, I'm also an executive editor of the Canadian Journal of Philosophy and an associated researcher of CRE, which is an ethics center based at the uh, Université de Montréal. Um, in terms of how I got into philosophy, um, I've been drawn to, philosoph- to philosophical for inquiry for really as long as I can remember, um, even before knowing uh, philosophy was a thing, which I didn't uh, realize until after high school. Um, my first official encounter with philosophy was uh, an ancient philosophy course that I took as part of a liberal arts program in uh, Dawson College in Quebec. And um, I was immediately hooked, uh, but it did take a few years for me to really entertain the possibility of pursuing a PhD in philosophy. Uh, My parents uh, grew up in farming villages in Greece and given very little in the way of educational opportunities. They were absolutely uh, pro-education for their children, uh, but pursuing a a degree to become that kind of doctor, uh, a doctor of philosophy, didn't um, seem like a real uh, possibility to me. Despite their Greek background, they didn't yeah, I know, love the funny. idea of it's, you becoming I know, a philosopher. It's so funny. It just seems like totally. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they they certainly weren't against it. They were just it was it was that the uh, uh, you know the, the the job aspect didn't line up as neatly with uh, you know, <laughs> but they were they were absolutely supportive. Again, they it wasn't it wasn't exactly uh, what any of us had in mind, but they were absolutely supportive. They were like I said, very gung-ho uh, for uh, educational opportunities in Canada. 
and, and, and lucky for me, uh, my, some, there were some mentors that helped me to see that I, you know, that, that this was a, well, uh, you know, at least possibly a viable, uh, <laughs> uh option. And, um, I guess I can say a little bit about my, my philosophical interests, uh, basically Great. my most enduring philosophical interest is an inquiry concerning, um, rationality and irrationality, um, so my early studies focused on the relationship between morality and rationality, and more specifically on the question, why be moral? Um, and I had the pleasure and honor of working with uh, David Godier, and, and in fact was one of his last PhD students. Yeah, it was great. Um, and my work in that area immersed me in inquiries on practical reason and led me to my current research focus, which is on uh, choice situations and preference structures that can interfere with choosing well by prompting uh, self-defeating of patterns, uh, self-defeating patterns of choice. Um, as you already suggested, the, the relevant patterns are associated with uh, various uh, complications, uh, being tempted or torn, and uh, they can include cases of uh, individual uh, and collective procrastination. Um, I mean, one thing I really love about doing research on practical reason is that it intersects with so many different topics. So uh, although my work is very theoretical, uh, several of my publications focus on illustrating the relevance of theoretical models to practical problems. Um, I've used uh, my cyclic preferences model of self-defeating behavior, and I'll, I'll say more of that when we delve into the book. Um, but I've used it to reveal special challenges associated with creeping environmental problems in which uh, severe environmental damage is the result of a series of actions with individually trivial environmental effects. And um, I've also used the model to, to illuminate um, the potential justifiability of so-called Ulysses contracts in the context of medical decision-making. Um, and uh, Ulysses contract is it's, it's an advanced directive that instructs certain others to compel one to stick to its terms, e uh, even regardless of one's anticipated uh, resistance. Um, and then finally, in my teaching, I appeal to the fact that practical reason intersects with so many topics uh, to convince my students that uh, even if my interest in practical reason are not their cup of tea, uh, they should be able to dedicate themselves to a term paper topic that they find uh, personally fascinating. So I kind of think you'll always find something uh, on decision making that intrigues you. So that, in that way, I, I just love working in that area. It's, it's very liberating for me, and I hope uh, at least a little bit liberating for my students. <laughs> Everyone deals with temptation, right? <laughs> well, there's that too. Yeah, there's that too. I mean, it's not, it's hard to not be uh, sucked in by discussions of self defeating patterns of behavior, procrastination, temptation. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Um, uh, should we start talking about the book? Yeah, that would be great. Yes, that's fabulous. Um, so, can we, you know, th there's a little bit of background or stage setting that I think it would be helpful um, for some listeners who might not be uh, as familiar as others with with the the with with the area that you're working in. So, there's some background that might be good to set in place. Um, so, the book is concerned with two general. Uh, again, to some of our listeners, but not all, I think pretty familiar categories of what can be called disordered or disorderly, untidy preferences, mm -hmm. um, cyclic preferences, and incomplete preferences. Um, now, I want to get into you know how you in your in your positive account address these, but can you just tell us a little bit, just you know, set the stage and tell us a little bit about those two phenomena? Yeah, sure. Okay, so well. Um... As you said, uh, both cyclic preferences and incomplete preferences uh, qualify as uh, disorderly, um, specifically in the sense that an agent with such preferences uh, can't order their options from most preferred to least preferred with every option higher on the list ranked above every option lower on the list and with options at the same level uh, favored exactly equally. So I'll, I'll kind of uh, first talk about cyclic preferences and then incomplete ones, but roughly speaking, uh, one's preferences over a set of options count as cyclic when they form a loop in which for every option, one prefers the next option in the loop. So you can sort of picture a circle with the options placed along the perimeter 
and with the next with the next option clockwise always preferred to the preceding option and um a familiar case of cyclic preferences and one i mentioned early in the book is the case of an agent who prefers on each day uh, D1 to D1000 to put off dieting for just one more day, but also prefers to begin dieting on day zero rather than uh, uh, day, day one, uh, rather than to begin dieting on day uh, 1000. So that's sort of a quick description of cyclic preferences. And now um, again, with incomplete preferences, again, uh, uh, the, the agent cannot order the options from most preferred to least preferred, uh, even allowing for ties. Uh, since when a set of preferences is incomplete, uh, at least one option is not ranked in relation to some other option, not even as exactly equally favored. Um, so otherwise put, uh, a set of incomplete preferences includes preference gaps. So, for example, an agent might not be able to rank a certain artistic option, say taking a drawing class, um, and a certain athletic option, say learning to figure skate, because uh, they don't see the options as one better than the other or as exactly equally good. So that's a quick description and sort of two quick cases that uh, I'll re be returning to. Well, that's fantastic. Um, so, and, and a very, uh, a very um, good articulation of those two phenomena, <laughs> by the way. So uh, uh, not only fantastic, it's fantastic in many ways. Um, so let's now get, get into the uh, into the, the, the positive view in your own arguments. Um, so the first chapter argues that, um, uh, that both of these phenomena and the profile, um, the preference profiles that um, uh, sort of accompany them can arise naturally, <laughs> that it's natural to find oneself, as you say, with cyclic preferences or incomplete preferences, um, and addresses some argument to the effect that um, that rational agency requires acyclical and complete preferences. And you find those arguments, um, in fact, the book is devoted to the proposition that rationality allows for cyclic and incomplete preferences. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the, about the, the views on the other side? Why, why you're not moved by the, the standard account of practical rationality or instrumental rationality that says that the, preference, the agent has to have acyclic and complete preferences? Yeah. So first of all, yes, just to emphasize, I, I do uh, agree that, um, and I think, I mean, I, I, I think it's actually fairly commonly recognized that cyclic preferences can arise quite easily, quite naturally, uh, especially in cases involving individually trivial effects, uh, like the dieting case where, you know, right. one more bite is not going to make or break, uh, you know, whether you can fit into a certain dress or uh, how, how uh, whether you'll be able to walk up a hill or something like that. Um, and as that case also makes clear, cyclic preferences can make the agent vulnerable to self-defeating patterns of choice, where the agent's prompted by her preferences to make each choice in a sequence of choices that put together uh, lead the agent to an option she finds unacceptable. So, uh, I, you know, that's just kind of recognized. Yes, they arise naturally, but yes, they also can cause problems. So, for instance, the would-be dieter might end up indulging for a thousand days in a row after deciding day after day to put off dieting for just a little bit longer. Again, same is true for incomplete preferences. Arise very uh, naturally um, in this case where the options are not one better than the other, but are also different enough that it really seems implausible to suggest that they're exactly equally good. Um, and here again, it's easy to see how the agent could be led astray. So, for instance, in the artistic versus athletic option case, the agent might settle on, say, the artistic option, but then waver and at some cost switch to the athletic option, which was available initially without the added cost. Right. So, as you say, traditional rational choice theory, no, it, it, it sees the, the, pro, the problems and... Um, for some reasons that I'll get into in a little bit more detail, uh, requires that an, the agent's preferences be um, acyclic, free of, in other words, free of preference loops or cycles, and complete, free of preference gaps. So uh, uh, it's recognized that agents' preferences can have these features, that there's loops and gaps. So it's not as though uh, they, the traditional rational choice theorists think that uh, acyclicity... Um, 
and incompleteness sort of are sort of definitive or always descriptive of people's preferences, but basically such structures are dismissed as irrational. So starting with the acyclicity requirement, uh, that requirement has been defended as a requirement of rationality based largely on that's uh, the, that'll be the focus that uh, for the cyclic preferences uh, 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 part because it's really been focused on uh, the money pump argument and and variations on it. Uh, according to which an agent with cyclic preferences is um, vulnerable to self-defeating patterns of choice in which as a result of following her preferences, she suffers a sure loss. So more specifically, the argument suggests that an agent with cyclic preferences is vulnerable to being used as a money pump where she repeatedly pays a small fee to swap for a preferred option But because her preferences are cyclical, she ultimately winds up with the same option she began with, minus the money she paid for all the trades. So something's wrong. I mean, something's going wrong. Um, And I agree that in that case, something's going wrong. But uh, the money pump argument doesn't need to be uh, taken as supporting the conclusion that cyclic preferences are irrational. Uh, And here I'm including variations of the argument that show that an agent with cyclic preferences is vulnerable to being used as a money pump, even if they foresee that more trade offers are forthcoming. Uh, Really, more modestly, what can be concluded is that either cyclic preferences are irrational or a rational agent doesn't invariably follow her preferences. And that's the, that, that second discharge is really important, you know, so that's like you need to pay attention to that because that's what the argument shows. So, right. um, and I mean, again, there's, there's more to say, but like strictly speaking, that's, that's what we can conclude there. So uh, uh, as such, someone who is not already committed to the idea that cyclic preferences are irrational, like myself, uh, and uh, someone that sees good reason to think that cyclic preferences can be, actually, in fact, rational, has the option of interpreting the money pump argument as speaking in favor of the conclusion that rational agents are not invariably guided by their preferences. And um, just as a quick aside, I mean, there's cases apart from cyclic preferences, cases in which there's an ever, there's always a, a ever better type cases where there's always a better option, where uh, most people would admit, uh, even people that don't like cyc- cyclic preferences, that you can't can't keep following your preferences. <laughs> in that case, you have to kind of uh, act counter preferentially at, at some point. So anyways, I have some reservations about the money pump argument. The main thing being, it's just jumping to a conclusion that it doesn't actually support. Um, and we'll say more about what can be said positively about, you know, having cyclic preferences. But but uh, that, that's my main worry with the money pump argument. Uh, turning to incomplete preferences, um, again, the ras- rational choice theory, traditional rational choice theory requires that the agent's preferences be complete, no preference gaps. Uh, In other words, for every option X and Y, uh, the agent has to either prefer X to Y or uh, prefer Y to X or be indifferent between X and Y. Uh, And again, one of the folk, uh, like one of the concerns, uh, one of the reasons uh, people worry about these preferences is because they can raise challenges. Um, uh, And I readily acknowledge this, but again, I don't think it's enough cause to dismiss them. Uh, particularly since uh, the rational permissibility of incomplete preferences seems like it can be defended in terms of the possibility of what are called incommensurable alternatives. So according to the standard usage usage of that term that I adopt uh, in the book and and now, uh, two options qualify as incommensurable if neither option is better than the other, but the options are not exactly equally good either. And the possibility of incommensurable alternatives is support is um, you know uh, uh, supported uh, or uh, at least there's an argument for it in terms uh, uh, of what's called the small improvement argument. So I want to say a little bit about that argument just to give you a sense of you know why someone might think that you two options could be incommensurable. So if there are incommensurable options. <laughs> then it seems like it makes sense for your preferences to be incomplete. And so the question is, could there be incommensurable options? And, and, um, and am, I, am I right? I'm sorry to interrupt. Am I right to think that among incommensurable options, the preference among them has to be incomplete? Uh, 
as I see it, so there's there that's controversial. Okay, <laughs> I, I, actually, I think I like that view. So yeah, I'm yeah, glad yeah. that you're finding that quite plausible. I yeah, think yeah. that it's sort of appropriate when uh, uh, options are incommensurable that your your preferences are incomplete. But there, it's 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 pretty complicated. So that's uh, not an uncontroversial claim, but I think a very plausible one. It just seems like I'm sorry. I, just one quick thought. It just seems like that's the way to do justice to the moral complexity <laughs> is to see them as right, see your preferences as incomplete. That's the moral richness uh, of the two options, right? Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I agree. I'm <laughs> okay. happy to have you on board. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. So the small improvement argument basically uh, it basically suggests that there's a bunch of different scenarios, and I'll give one, but just to kind of lay out the structure of the scenario uh, is you have three op- – there's supposed to be scenarios in which there's three options, call them A, B, and A+, where A+, is just a slightly improved option uh, version of A that satisfy the following conditions. Uh, a, plus is, a is not better than B, B is not better than A. Uh, but A plus is better than A, but not better than B. Right. Now, if, you, if it, based on the assumption that if two options were exactly equally good, then an option that was better than one of them would also be better than the other option. It's concluded that not only are A and B in these types of cases, uh, neither be- one better than the other, they're also not exactly equally good. So you have that, that that thing about finding this A plus where it's better than one of the options, but not better than the other is kind of really important to the way this argument works. And, the, you know, many small improvement type cases have been offered. And uh, I think one of the ones that I really like is uh, focuses on just uh, cases in which what matters in the situation is just what's currently appealing to the agent, uh, given her sensibility and uh, in and su- suppose that in th- su- such a case, the agent's sensibility doesn't generate a ranking between options that are experienced as sort of in the same league, but also appealing in very different ways. Um, in that case, uh, the agent can correctly believe that given what matters in the case at hand, uh, neither option is better than the other and uh uh, an improved version of one of the options. So, so let me do it in terms of the A's and B's, but A is not better than B and B is not better than A, but A plus is better than A, but not better than B. So a concrete case would be, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll use a case that might be familiar to people, uh, is uh, Ruth Chang's coffee or tea case. So uh, uh, Chang basically suggests that you have to determine which of a cup of coffee or a cup of tea tastes better to you. Uh, there, as I said, you know, in the same league, but appealing in very different ways. The coffee has a full-bodied, sharp, pungent taste, <laughs> as as uh, Chang describes it. The tea has a warm, soothing, fragrant taste. And Chang suggests that it's surely possible that you rationally judge that the, the uh, cup of coffee tastes neither better than worse than the cup of tea, and that although a slightly more fragrant tea would taste better than the original, uh, the more fragrant tea would not taste better than the coffee. Um, So, you know, if you're trying out the drinks for the purposes of choice and you correctly believe that one drink is, you know, better than the other for the purposes of choice, only if it tastes better to you and there can be situations in which that's all that matters, uh, then you can, it seems, correctly believe that uh, the cup of coffee and the cup of tea are such that neither is better than the other and that, you know, a more slightly fragrant cup of tea would be better than the original cup of tea, but not better than the coffee. So here, a preference gap is, you know, preference gaps seem perfectly appropriate, a preference gap between the cup of coffee and the original cup of tea, uh, and also a preference gap between the coffee and the more fragrant uh, cup of tea. So I've been going on for a while, but hopefully this gives you a sense of the reasons that uh, lead me to think that traditional rational choice theories dismissal of cyclic preferences and incomplete preferences is hasty. I'm not saying these are the kind of decisive arguments against it, but it's it's hasty. I think, uh, to uh, move so quickly, especially in light of, uh, as we'll get to, you know, sort of positive cases where it seems uh, perfectly reasonable for an agent's preferences to be cyclic uh, and, and incomplete. I mean, well, I already suggested, but in more detail. 
Well, fabulous. Um, and just for the record, you know, those those arguments of the book seem your arguments and, and the way that you use the, the Chang example um, just seem to me to be pretty decisive at getting, as you properly articulate, a pretty modest conclusion, which is just, you know, the standard and rational choice theory that condemns all of humanity to irrationality might be a little hasty. <laughs> so good. But let's... Um, um, Let's let's start getting into the the the, the positive account. So, um, you, you claim that agents who have either cyclic or incomplete preferences, um, e, e, would, even though having such preference profiles is consistent with their rationality, they still must take care, and to use that term, uh, take care or you know be careful uh, um, uh, to avoid sort of diachronic patterns of um, choice making that are self defeating. Um, and here you raise um, what struck me as a really intriguing puzzle about the very concept of self-defeat. Um, can you, so can you walk us through that part of the book? Yeah. Okay. So um, so one of the things I emphasize is that uh, self-defeating patterns of choice, including those that are prompted by cyclic and incomplete preferences, need not be the, the result of the self losing control over behavior um, as might happen, uh, for example, in the case of the uh, philosophically familiar case of the unwilling addict gripped by urges that he disavows. Um, self-defeating patterns of choice can instead figure as instances of what I call self-defeating self-governance. So it's not like the self has lost control. Indeed, I think that for behavior to be um, truly or strictly speaking self-defeating, truly an in instance of the self defeating itself the behavior must be self-governed. And this is where that puzzle comes in, because notice that if some bit of behavior is not governed by the self, then any defeating going on can't be traced to the self. And so the behavior cannot, strictly speaking, qualify as self-defeating. Uh, and if, on the other hand, some bit of behavior is self-governed, then assuming that self-governance involves being true to oneself, the behavior cannot, if it's informed, be self-defeating either. So it seems like either way, whether or not one's behavior is self-governed, um, if it's informed, it can't be self-defeating. Which is, I mean, which I obviously I, I don't think that because, um, well, because I think that uh, reflection on cyclic preferences, for example, makes it clear that behavior can be both self-defeating and self-governed. Um, so this is because if one's preferences are cyclic, then one can follow one's preferences, uh, uh, even if in, uh, sorry, if, if, if one follows one's preferences, that can lead to an outcome that one deems bad, um, even if good uh, options were available along the way. And uh, in this case, the, the bad result is not because one's being sort of dragged along or uh, pulled along by some preferences that one is alienated from. One can stand behind these preferences. These can be things that are important to oneself. Um, so again, I think cyclic preferences sort of uh, can get us out of that puzzle. So just to make it a little bit more concrete, uh, recall the case where the agent ends up indulging for a thousand days in a row after repeatedly deciding to put off dieting for just a little longer. Though things go badly, um, at each choice point, the agent endorses putting off dieting now. Uh, since the culinary indulgence under consideration at each individual choice point will bring significantly culinary, significant culinary enjoyment without significantly impacting the agent's health, and in particular without making the agent's health significantly worse than it currently is, whatever her current state of health. So she's not like the, you know, the drug addict who just can't control herself and is like, I know this is a terrible thing to do. I mean, maybe some people that eat that are like that, but you don't have to be like that. You could just, you know, recognize, well, I'll just have a little bit more and uh, it's not going to make or break anything. And so here you're not alienated from, you don't have, it's not necessary that you're alienated from your preferences in order to still get into trouble. So to do better, it's not enough for the agent to avoid uh, quote unquote alien urges and desires. She must sometimes act against her preferences uh, even if they truly reflect her ranking of the options. So that's sort of the the, the puzzle and uh, my response to it. 
That's great. That's great. And when, let me just ask, so very quickly, so we say has to act against her preferences. Can you just fill that in? So have to act against her current preferences or her present preferences? And is that to be understood as for the sake of some um, more diachronically understood or some preference with respect to a pattern of behavior? Can you spell that out just a little bit? Yeah, well, so her preferences are what she's going to need to do. I mean, I can't spell it all out until we get to a little bit more of the tools I need to explain my view. But I can definitely say that, you know, she has these kind of pairwise rankings and she's she can see the big picture, you know, can see that if she acts on these pairwise rankings, she's going to get into trouble. She's going to end up with, let's say, a terrible alternative, even though there were these decent options available along the way. And so, yes, at, I mean, at some point she's going to have to, you know, she, she, what I mean by she's going to have to act against her purpose, she's going to have to kind of sort of violate one of these pairwise rankings. And uh, these rankings are, uh, they're, they're, they are rankings that take into account everything that matters it, with respect to that particular choice. But nonetheless, uh, again, because they're, they're cyclic, that's not enough to make it, um, you know, totally fine to proceed with them. Good, 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 good. That's helpful. I, um, I, ho- I hope, I mean, if, so w- when I say a little bit more about the distinction at the heart of my view, um, if you're still kind of wondering, then, good. you know, ask me again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, this is a good segue. So let's let's get to that. So um, your third chapter, I think, really is the the, the philosophical heart of the positive account. Um, this is where you uh, lay out your revamped model of instrumental rationality, and the distinction that you just alluded to is a distinction between two different kinds of subjective sort of appraisals: um, the one relational and the other uh, categorical. Um, and this argument runs by way of um, an engagement with a, a peculiar character, uh, the self-torturer. Um, so can you lay out the distinction and, and tell us how the, uh, that particular uh, odd fellow figures in? Yes, for sure. Okay. And you're right. Yeah, that's the heart of the book. Getting a handle on that distinction and on cases like the case of the self-torturer. He's peculiar, but as we'll see, not that peculiar, kind yeah, of one. Yeah, that's similar. right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of peculiar, but kind of like super familiar. Yeah, so, that's right. Um, but you want, you, we want to get a candle on these cases because, and the distinction because it's really important for understanding the really big pitfall associated with disorderly preferences and for seeing how it can be avoided. So I'll actually take it in the uh, opposite order. I'm going to start with the case of the self-torture because that's going to really, I think, in a concrete way, help motivate uh, and clarify the distinction. So uh, the case of self-torture is put forward by uh, Warren Quinn, and it's a somewhat complicated case, but... Uh, here's the gist of it as I describe it in my book. So I'll just kind of go through the case. I'll, it's, a, it's a little bit of a longish description, but it's kind of important. So I want to go through it a little bit carefully. So someone referred to as the self-torturer has an electric device with a thousand and one settings attached to him. Raising the setting uh, of the device increases the amount of electric current running through the self-torturer's body. Now, the increments in current are so tiny that the self-torturer cannot del- tell the difference between adjacent settings, or, or at least, j- just to back off a bit, at least he can't with any confidence determine whether he has moved up a setting just by the way he feels. And yet, he can easily distinguish settings that are far enough apart. Indeed, they're settings that would take the self-torture to a state of excruciating pain. Now, the self-torture is provided with the following offer. Once a week, he can compare all the different settings, and if he so chooses, he can advance one setting. Advancing a setting gets him $10,000, which is nice. And you can actually, for the puzzle, if you're, you know, there's been inflation since then. So you can make it, <laughs> if you want. Uh, but you know, you can make it a hundred thousand at each advance. But in any case, what it's not, it, the point is if a 10,000 seems like not that much to you as it did to Quinn when he wrote it, it's okay to uh, increase. But once the torture, uh, self-torture advances the setting, he can never permanently return to a lower setting. Um, Now, the self-torturer would like to increase his fortune, who wouldn't, but he also cares about how he feels. So given his concerns, he finds himself with the following preference. So first of all, for any two settings, N and N plus one, the self-torturer prefers all things considered, like money and how he feels, uh, stopping at setting N plus one to stopping at setting N. Um, This is perfectly understandable. 
uh, since any difference in comfort between adjacent settings is so slight that the self-torturer can't with any confidence determine whether he has moved up a setting just by the way he feels, but he gets $10,000 at each advance. But he understandably also prefers stopping at setting zero, where he feels fine, over stopping at setting 1,000, where he feels excruciating pain. So the self-torture's preferences are cyclic, and yet, uh, as Quinn suggests, it seems dogmatic to dismiss them as irrational. So that's the description in a, of the puzzle of the self-torture as it appears in my book and sort of captures Quinn's puzzle uh, in a nutshell. Now, appealing to the money pump argument is not going to suffice for dismissing the self-torturer's preferences as irrational, because as I already explained, what the money pump argument shows is uh, not that uh, cyclic preferences are irrational, but more modestly that either cyclic preferences are irrational or a rational agent does not invariably follow their preferences. And given this alternative interpretation of the money pump argument, I think that as Quinn suggests, theorists theorists, uh, looking for neatness should be uh, wary of making things, as uh, as he puts it, too easy on themselves and too hard on the self-torturer. And that's a great, that's one of the, that's one of the best lines in in philosophy, isn't it? Yes, it is awesome. Yes. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I'm a theorist that likes neatness, but it's just too bad for me, you know. so sure, the self-torturer's preferences raise some challenges that the self-torturer needs to be sensitive to. Um, and sure, relative to the self-torturer's preferences, there's no good, uh, there's no, sorry, there's no optimal option since for every since for every option, there's like another preferred option. But to dismiss the self-torturer's preferences as irrational on this basis is, is really to assume rather than to show that cyclic preferences are irrational. You have to say more than just there's always a preferred option. Yeah, that's the structure of cyclic preferences. Um, Now, it might be insisted that even though there's no optimal option relative to the self-torturer's preferences, there must be some optimal option relative to his underlying concerns um, and that his preferences are mistaken for failing to track this. But again, this is to assume rather than to show that the self-torturer's problems is to be traced to his preferences rather than to his acting on them without being sufficiently cautious given the dynamic of his choice situation. So it's it's not clear that there has to be an optimal choice, uh, a, an optimal option, even relative to under, his underlying concerns. You can just assume that, you can assume that's the case, but then you're not giving an argument. You're just saying, oh, I think there's got to be because everything is such a mess. Okay, but part of the reason the stuff is a mess is because he's acting on his preferences. And, you know, it seems normally it seems like a good idea to act on your preferences, but not always. Now, uh, and this gets back to something uh, in case the dynamic of the self-torturer's preferences seems to uh, the self-torturer situation seems to be uh, too odd to be worth racking our brains over. Um, it's worth emphasizing that, as Quinn puts it, the self-torturer is not alone in his predicament. Most of us are like him in one way or another. We like to eat, but we also care about our appearance. Uh, And and again, another little quote from him, uh, uh, just as one more bite will give us pleasure and won't make us look fatter, but very many bites will. So although Quinn's case of the self-torture is pretty far-fetched, the idea that changes can add up in a way that makes following even perfectly rational preferences problematic is really not at all uh, far-fetched, I think. So I've been questioning the assumption that a rational agent uh, will invariably act on his preferences, but this raises the interesting question of what appraisals, apart from an agent's preferences, instrumental rationality could be accountable to. And that's where my distinction between relational subjective appraisal responses and categorical uh, subjective appraisal responses comes in. And I know that's a, they're, they're, <laughs> those are very, uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, especially after I say that relational subjective appraisal responses are just what people call preferences. But there's a reason. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to get a lot of information in there. There are appraisal responses, but they're also subjective. And then there's this contrast between relational and categorical. Uh, versions of those two types of responses. So as they figure in my view, relational subjective appraisal responses and categorical subjective appraisal responses are two distinct kinds of appraisal responses in human psychology. Uh, Relational subjective appraisal responses, which are typically referred to as uh, preferences, 
rank the options in relation to one another. And categorical subjective appraisal responses, uh, by contrast, put options in categories, such as, for instance, terrible or fair or fantastic. And again, by saying that an option is terrible doesn't tell me how it relates to some other option. That other option could be even worse or it could be better or whatever. So it's there's something different going on uh, there. I, and of course, I say more in the book. But, uh, but I want to say a little bit about sort of... Uh, there's there's definitely some disanalogies, but I want to say a little bit about how I came to this distinction and uh, uh, hopefully in doing that, even though there are some disanalogies, in, uh, make it a little bit more uh, compelling. So the distinction draws on uh, David Papineau's work on color perception and in particular on his distinction between categorical color responses and relational color responses. Um, so... Papineau claims that our conscious color experiences is the joint product of two different kinds of perceptual state. One provides us with categorical color responses where we experience as a surface as of a certain color, like maybe a particular shade of sky blue. And the other provides us with a relational color response where we experience color samples as either uh, the same or different from each other in some way. Now, Papineau's position has important implications in, re in relation to the interpretation of data on color discrimination. So take the view that human beings have more than a million different color uh, conscious uh, visual responses to colored surfaces. So this is an, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 a view that some that has been held. Um, and it's based on two things. First of all, evidence that humans can detect color difference, differences between over a million different color samples. But also, secondly, the assumption, and this is where things get tricky, that, as Papineau puts it, our consciously registering a difference in color must derive first from our having one color response to the left-hand side surface and then having another color response to the right-hand side surface and thence registering that there's a difference. So that's the assumption. But if Papineau uh, is right, uh, registering... Uh, if, if registering color differences between uh, color samples doesn't invariably result from having independent responses to each sample and then comparing the responses, uh, we can actually explain the discrimination data without positing a million different visual responses to colored surfaces. For it's then possible to see two adjacent color samples as different and accept a relational judgment to this effect even when the two samples generate the same, exact same conscious visual experience uh, when each is viewed on its own, uh, it, where this, this the set of uh, conscious visual experiences you're drawing on is a relatively small set of such experiences. So I can't remember what he says, but I mean, I think even artists only have like, I don't know, hundreds or something would be a lot. Um, so from if, with a small set of uh, uh, conscious visual uh, experiences, a kind of categorical color responses. If you combine that with relation, independent relational responses, you, you don't actually need to be able to see a million colors to be able to discriminate between the colors. So it sounds a little weird, but it, it I, I actually find it quite compelling. Still, um, actually, for my purposes, I don't want to have to convince you <laughs> that Papineau is right about that. He might be totally off base. What matters, I think, for my purposes is that uh, the distinction or more specifically my the, the related distinction I draw between categorical appraisal responses and relational appraisal responses can shed light on the nature of instrumental rationality. And again, I'm not saying exactly the same thing is going on. For one thing, I mean, the color responses can be objective. And in fact, all be, uh, the color, sorry, color discriminations can be objective. And I'm actually, a lot of the cases I'm interested in are cases where it's something's a matter of taste. So there's going to be that disanalogy. But what's important is that it's possible that we can, in our psychology can be such that we have two different types of response uh, uh, in assessing the same thing, let's say color, two different types of response. One of them's relational, the other one's categorical. So how, so again, just to kind of explain how this is relevant. Instrumental rationality is typically thought of to be accountable to only relational subjective appraisal responses. I mean, usually people use the word preferences, but because I'm drawing this distinction, I, I'm uh, 
<laughs> so that's, you know, preferences. That's what it's all about uh, when people talk about instrumental rationality, usually. But this inappropriately neglects categorical subjective appraisal responses, which constitute, uh, as I said, a distinctive kind of subjective appraisal response in human psychology. So go back to the case of the self-torturer. The self-torturer, no one talks about this uh, in terms of categorical relational appraisal responses, but it's pretty clear from the case that the self-torturer's categorical appraisal responses are such that some options qualify as terrible, while other options qualify as like decent or good or maybe even great. Uh, it's therefore not rationally acceptable for the self-torture to wind up with a terrible option. At least we want our theory of rationality to kind of give us that as an output. But since that's where following his preferences would lead him, he must at some point show restraint and act against one of his preferences. More specifically, and so this is where I, I'm getting back to that question you asked before, he must be sensitive to the dynamic of his choice situation and stop at a setting that falls within the highest available category, which might be, for example, the category uh, good or great, depending on how the case is filled in. But basically, the idea is you're going to have this preference loop and there's going to be no if, it, it, you know, it's just all these everything's there's always something preferred to something else. Nonetheless, there's something more going on here. There's also categorical appraisal responses, and that's where rationality can provide you guidance in this case, telling you, you know, wh where you should end up. Now, not an exact spot. Multiple spots would be permissible, but roughly. So the general principle in play here is that rationally governed choice prohibits an agent from winding up with an alternative that's in a lower appraisal category than another available alternative. And here I'm assuming there's no unexpected developments and that there's a finite set of appraisal, or like in this case that, that I'm interested in, there's a finite set of appraisal categories. So just to emphasize, if there were no appraisal, uh, categorical appraisal responses, there were just preferences like, like uh, 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 is sometimes supposed, then any option in a preference cycle would be just as rationally permissible or irrationally impermissible as any other option. But with categorical re uh, appraisal responses, this need not be the case. And that's actually really important for providing guidance. Um, the moral, just in a nutshell here, is uh, <laughs> to wrap up a very long response, <laughs> is that while uh, instrumental rationality is accountable to the agent's subjective appraisal responses, these include more than just the agent's preferences. So again, uh, uh, it's, it's, there are subjective appraisal responses, but there's two kinds. Uh, in, in addition to including relational subjective appraisal responses, they also include categorical subjective appraisal responses. Uh, and these responses are associated with a rational requirement that both in theory and in practice sometimes calls for acting counter-preferentially. And keep in mind, both of these types of responses are still subjective responses. And in that sense, they're not, I'm not talking about something else that would go well beyond instrumental rationality. Um, I'm talking about subjective responses. They're just res subjective responses of two different types. And, uh, and to avoid confusion, I've called them categorical rather than categorical, precisely because Kant's notion of a categorical response is, is very suggestive of something very objective. Uh, whereas my the responses I'm talking about here can be completely subjective responses in the sense of, you know, I find this terrible. I like I taste Vegemite. I find it terrible. You love it. That's fine. Uh, whatever. Uh, of course, instrumental rationality is going to guide me in relation to my subjective appraisal responses and guide you in relation to your subjective appraisal responses. Good. Everything's lovely. Right. So, <laughs> that's perfect. But that helps to sort of tease out something. Um, uh, you were right. You need the tools to explain. So when you, when you say that um, uh, the the money pump argument gives you a conclusion that's a disjunct rather than <laughs> right rather than just uh, 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 and and you and you go for the second disjunct which is that rationality rational agents sometimes don't follow their preferences um, but now we have the tools to say yeah but rational agents still have to be responsive to some kind of 
set of considerations, even if they're not preferences now understood in your terminology as these sort of subjective uh, uh, um, relational appraisals. Is that right? Yes, but they're still subjective. It's just right, yeah, yeah, right, right. The, category. It's just that rationality it's, does require yeah. a kind of responsiveness to something, even right. in these cases of uh, acyclic and uh, I'm sorry, of so, cyclical and uh, um, uh, incomplete preferences. The rational agent still is answerable to something. Yes, absolutely. Good, perfect. Um, so th- that that. You know, like I said, that's the core of the book. That's the big thought uh, uh, that, um, you know, I, I, I think that I think this is right. If you get that much, you know, if, if you've convinced the reader of that much, I think the rest is kind of gravy in the book. Does that sound right to you? <laughs> um, well, well there's, some pretty, there's still some, yeah, there's a little bit of controversial stuff going on here and there as well. But yeah, let's, let's call that. Let's say, yeah. Um, no, so, I agree. It's definitely I mean, that's the core. So yeah, yeah, right. the other stuff. If you're if you're not on board, you probably you're. I, I, you don't. I don't think you have to be on board. As I actually, I'm gonna. Uh, sorry. Uh, in the if we get to uh, at some point talking about better than uh, there, there's some stuff that I think that even if you're not on board, there's still some takeaways that can be important. But. Um, very that can be very important but uh you know this is what i i would be very happy if uh some of this went down with people as a you know (laughs) plausible (laughs) (laughs) well i i found it really plausible so um so I have a question next about four and five, the chapters four and five, which are about, um, you know, an issue that, um, you know, I remember reading the uh, the Ruth Chang volume, the, the edited volume on incommensurability and parity. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, and we can talk about that. But if in, unless unless you object, I really do want to ask about the better then. Um, oh, yes. uh, the yeah. betterness stuff, because that seems to me um, to be one of those implications, because one of the I guess one of the worries that one might have about the kind of account that you've just laid out about these two different modes of subjective appraisal is that it does seem to it might seem, let's say, to make a hash out of sort of intuitive senses in which uh, we think that um, uh, um, better than. When we t- when we use terms when we use terms about that, that denote betterness, um, it looks as if um, uh, your account is going to spoil some of that or is going to make that a little bit more mysterious than it might otherwise have seemed. So, can you tell us a bit about your account of betterness, um, given that you think that cyclical preferences don't necessarily defeat rationality? You've got a kind of advisability view about uh, what betterness judgments in these contexts come to. Tell us about that. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I, that, I, that, yeah, the question that I focus on is exactly what you kind of picked out. Like, it's this question of if rational preferences really can be cyclic, what should we con- conclude about the presumed acyclicity of the better than relation or more specifically better than as an option for a particular agent? Uh, so it's standardly assumed that better than uh, that the better than relation orders options neatly in a in a nice kind of lineup, and I I actually uh, want uh, you know want things not to get too messy there. So usually I'm like ah we're gonna have to expect accept some messiness. Uh, this is not gonna be super neat, but it's gonna be a lot neater. So basically what I argue is in order to maintain a notion of better than that accords with the idea that choosing in line with betterness judgments is essential for choosing well, we really should hang on to the view that better than is acyclic. Um, Instead of abandoning this view, we should abandon the assumption that X is rationally preferred to Y uh, by the agent implies that X is better than Y uh, as an option for the agent. So, uh, you know, uh, so you can. I'm going to say a few things, and then you can start pressing me in various directions because this is a little bit of a complicated thing. But I do believe that there's a way of sort of saying, yeah, we kind of want to keep some, even if preferences and even if rational preferences can be messy, we want to impose a, 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 a sort of a, a, insofar as we want to keep using the term better better than in a way that accords with the idea that you know betterness is you know, we want to line up betterness and choosing well, then we're going to kind of insist that it has to be a little bit more orderly. You know, just that's, you know, things can be messy. It's just that we're going to, uh, you know, try and uh, 
think about how we can nonetheless be guided in a fairly uh, comprehensible way. Um, yeah, we don't want them messier yeah. than they need to be. Yeah, we don't want them messier <laughs> right. than they need to be, and we want yeah. the guidance provided by yeah. rationality yeah. to be sort of fairly uh, uh, comprehensible. So the, so we can pre- preserve the acyclicity of the better-than relation by accepting what I call the inadvisability condition and the practicability assumption. So the inadvisability condition just basically says that X is better than Y. So it's always going to be as an option for the agents. It's always going to be relative to the agent. I'm not just talking about betterness here, like uh, in some objective sense, but always as an option for the agent or relative to the options available to the agent and uh, what they care about and stuff. So X is better than Y uh, as an option for let A. In, uh, uh, according to the inadvisability condition, X is better than Y as an option for A implies that it is rationally inadvisable for A to choose Y, the worse option, from any finite set that includes both X and Y. So if it's worse, don't choose it. <laughs> uh, according to the, so that's the first uh, thing. Then according to the practicability assumption, if one hasn't made any prior errors, one won't be in a predicament wherein every option is rationally inadvisable. Very roughly speaking, the idea here is that rationality is not going to put you in a bind. Assuming you're not messing up, rationality is going to, not going to put you in a bind where like nothing is rationally permissible for you to do. So those two ideas, I think, are quite plausible. And actually, they it follows from those two ideas that better than as acyclic, even if preferences can be rationally cyclic. So I, I'll just super quick um, give a sense of how that goes, and then I can either elaborate or not elaborate. Uh, but I, I do hope, uh, it cut me off if there's not enough time for me to say how I think that this is relevant um, again, even if you haven't bought a lot of the stuff that I've said previously in the book. So for, let me just say quickly, just in terms of the argument for showing that these conditions imp- imply that better than is acyclic, it's actually a pretty quick argument. So basically, you take any finite set of alternatives, according to the practicability assumption, it must be that at least one option in the set is not rationally inadvisable. Uh, you suppose that Y is such an option? then since it's not rationally inadvisable to choose Y from the set, it follows from the inadvisability condition that there's no option in S that's better than Y. Because uh, if there was a better option, it wouldn't be advisable to choose Y. But then the options in S can't form a betterness cycle because in a betterness cycle, there's always an option that's better. And so that's it. Uh, since S is any finite set here, it follows that better than is acyclic. So we really have just a, a simple proof that those two conditions put together, I think very plausible, uh, lead you to the conclusion that better than is acyclic. But it's still kind of interesting to try and figure out what's going on here to kind of really understand how this uh, divergence between is better than and is rationally preferred to might be realized. And for that, what you need to do is uh, notice that since in accordance with the practicability assumption, not every option in a preference loop can be rationally inadvisable, the fact that an option in a preference loop is dispreferred to another can't make the dispreferred option that that in and of itself can't make the ration the, the dispreferred option rationally inadvisable. That just follows from the practicability assumption. And it can't and, and, and then that means it can't suffice to make the other option better. So there's two possible scenarios. Either there's some further feature that grounds a rational asymmetry. Um, between some of the options in the preference loop or there's not. If there's not, then none of the options in the preference loop count as better than any of the other options. So you just get, you know, the preference loop, it's fine to pick. You don't get any more specific guidance. It's fine to pick whichever. Um, if there's not, uh, if there is, on the other hand, a further feature that grounds a rational asymmetry between some of the options in the preference loop, that's where we need rational guidance. Uh, now, that further asymmetry will provide us with the rational guidance. So let's say, to go back to the idea of categories, one of the options is very welcome to the agent. It's great. The other option is terrible. It's dreaded. That will provide a, a way of grounding a better than attribution within the preference cycle 
that's compatible with the acyclicity of the better than relation. So this is a little bit complicated. I, I, you know, I wasn't sure if saying this out loud was a good idea. But, <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, if anybody caught any of that, the main thing I just want to, uh, if I have a couple minutes, I really would just like to say um, how this can be, how this relates to an idea that I think is a little bit more easy to grasp. Um, so what I think is it's important to recognize that although we can preserve the acyclicity of the better than relation, when preferences are rationally uh, cyclic, thinking in terms of appraisal categories, or I sometimes call them leagues, remains very pertinent. So this is because in such cases, rational choice will still involve league-based satisficing. And I think you talked about maximizing when you introduced uh, things. So this, by contrast, will involve what I call league-based satisficing relative to the agent's preferences. Um, in particular, in cases involving rationally cyclic preferences, rationality will call for settling on an option that it's in, that's in the highest available league and for putting aside the fact that the option is dispreferred relative to some other available option, since this is true of all the options. So it's just not, you know, make or break. Now, this is where if I've now, if this is where this is one thing I think I, I want to emphasize for people that are just not buying any of this, is that uh, the significance of thinking in terms of leagues remains intact, even if one just absolutely refuses to acknowledge that there's room for rationally cyclic preferences, and instead insists that rational. Uh, preference cycles are illusory, and that even though it's sometimes infeasible or maybe even impossible to know which option is optimal relative to what the agent cares about, there's always an optimal option. So someone might think that. Now, I just want to say th two things here. Uh, first of all, it's worth flagging that this response presupposes that rational preferences are acyclic rather than arguing for that position. But even if the position were compelling, there would still be a, a need for league-based satisficing, since in practical terms, we would, given our ignorance, face the same, exactly the same conundrum as we would in cases involving genuine rational preference cycles. So really, if, if you hate everything I've said before, it's still true that all this machinery of the categorical appraisal responses, the relational appraisal responses, league-based satisficing, all that, and, and especially how to make a decision when you are, let's say you are, there's this illusory preference cycle. And for people that think that preference cycles are illusory, they generally grant that there's, you know, it, it actually can be infeasible and maybe even impossible to know, to get you to, to know, uh, to see, to, to kind of get out of that, uh, to, to see things any differently. So again, practically speaking, all of this machinery, I think, is still going to be uh, very useful. So that's my attempt at <laughs> getting someone a little bit on board if they're not going to be on board with uh, um, the more radical uh, 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 claims that I make. Well, fantastic. I think we've got sort of time for for one more question. And it, I, I really would, would like to just to end on sort of can you say something quickly for a couple of minutes now about sort of the book ends with what I thought were some really interesting very suggestive, uh, um, uh, um, intriguing thoughts um, about resolutions, <laughs> uh, about temptation, and about regret um, in the wake of having made what you think was even the right choice or the best choice. Um, can you can you say something? This is the sort of rational regret stuff. Um, could you say something? You know, very quickly, just to to give the uh, give our listeners some sense of 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 how the book you know ends on those upshots. Yeah. So the relationship between temptation and regret is uh, is complicated, especially in cases involving rationally cyclic preferences. And the, the short, really short answer, but I can say a little bit more if there's time, the really short answer is that while giving in to temptation um, in such cases uh, can generate a certain sort of regret, namely regret based on the idea that one chose erroneously, that one made a mistake, uh, sidestepping temptation via league-based satisficing can still generate another sort of regret, namely regret understood as mourning the loss of a foregone good, and really, and I think in a very interesting type of way. So uh, maybe I'll just uh, um, 
skip ahead to that second sort of regret. And then if you want me to say something about the first one, I can do that. But just briefly, uh, the second sort of regret can be illustrated via a case like the dieting case, but where the agent, uh, you know, actually successfully shows restraint promptly enough to avoid the unwanted effects of overeating. Here, the agent mourns not a bad choice, but the loss of a foregone good that he deprived himself of, in this case, an additional uh, 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 experience of culinary enjoyment, and that he could have had had he put off showing restraint for just a little bit longer. Of course, starting to diet at some point early on is necessary for the uh, good bodily state that the agent seeks. But since there's no sharp crossover point, in the process of enjoying, let's say, one treat at a time, wherein things become significantly worse than they currently are, the dieter's situation at each choice point is never as neat as now or never. And so acting promptly enough will always be somewhat arbitrary, leaving the agent with the kind of, um, you know, (laughs) a recognition that a single further indulgence would not have been make or break with respect to his long-term goal. And that can be, uh, you know, a little bit uh, uh, worth some mourning, even if you realize that that arbitrariness is built in and that you did not make a mistake. Right. And I guess, um, yeah, and that's that's part of an argument, um, sort of a Thomas Herka argument about how you don't have to be a pluralist in that value pluralist sense in order to make sense of regret in these kinds of cases. Am I right? Well, yeah. So that there's a there's a lot more a lot more going on in that chapter where I talk about how is this related to monism about the good and pluralism about the good and and, you know usually people think that as you put the term rational regret it's called rational regret is cases where you think you uh, sort of very very roughly speaking here while you kind of are happy with the decision you made you endorse it but nonetheless there seems to be like some kind of mourning mourning uh, is appropriate and uh, oftentimes it's supposed that. Uh, this sort of regret is possible only where you think that you've what you've given up was uh, you've get, that you've given up something only for the sake of a kind of incomparable good or a preferable good. And what's interesting in these cases is that's not exactly what's going on. There's still that's that same I think of rational regret where you you're regretting something even though you endorse the choice that you made. But what's interesting here is the thing you regret is maybe like not just having gone a tiny bit further. But of course, had you gone a tiny bit further, you would have gotten not a very different good at all. It's not like you, you know, it, it would have been the same. Basically, you know, you would have shown enough restraint to have like um, succeeded in your diet and, and you, but you would have gotten a little bit more of this uh, thing you enjoy, this culinary enjoyment. So there's not like the, the, the option between opting, stopping now and stopping a little later is not like this, like two different incommensurable goods. Um, but still, there's room for this different sort of regret. Uh, so it's yeah. So it kind of hooks up with that rational regret stuff and the question of whether rational regret is always uh, sort of uh, generated by cases in where you you uh, give something up in order to uh, uh, get some other uh, incommensurable or better good, and that's not exactly what's going on here. Crisola, there's we can talk a lot more about this book. Uh, and just for uh, people who are listening, um, you know, uh, we've we've we we laid out the the core of the book, but there's 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 a lot more in it. Um, uh, it's 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 a it's a slender book in many ways, but philosophically kind of expansive. Um, so, but um, we'll have to end here and um, uh, advise listeners to go and 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 check it out. Um, but for now, Chrisula, thank you so much uh, for joining me on on New Books in Philosophy. It's a real pleasure to talk about uh, to talk about your book. Thank you so much. It's just been great talking to you. Thank you. Fabulous. Um, and thank you, listeners, um, for joining us uh, for this discussion. Um, I've been talking with uh, Chrisula Andrio. Uh, her new book is called Choosing Well, and it's available now through Oxford University Press. Um, thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.